Welcome to uh, episode 41 of the Lebanese Physicians uh, Podcast. And uh, today we will be discussing the new clinical trial that was uh, just published among uh, a number of, medic- number of major medical centers in uh, Beirut, authored by Dr. Haytham Khafarani, Dr. Jamal Habballah, and multiple other authors, uh, including Dr. Bassem Safadeh, Dr. George Dabar, who might be joining us today on the podcast. BES is, stands for the Beirut Blast Assessment for Surgical Services Collaborative. And we will discuss it further during the podcast. We have with us today Dr. Adam Khafarani, who is an associate professor of surgery at Harvard Medical School. He's the director of the Center for Outcomes and Patient Safety and Surgery Compass, director of trauma and emergency surgery research, and director of the Mass General Wound Center. And we also have Dr. Jamal Habballah, who is currently the chairperson of the Department of Surgery at the American University of Beirut Medical Center, and previously was chair of surgery at the University of Iowa Hospitals and uh, Clinics uh, of vascular surgery uh, at the time. And I, I knew him I knew him from that time when I was a resident at the University of Iowa. And we've got, um, of course, we co-host, we, we have uh, Dr. Hamad Ali Jardali as a co-host. Uh, thank you all for, uh, for attending uh, the podcast. Thank you for having us. Of course, of course. So I'm going to ask Dr. Kafarani actually, how did, how did the name, first, how did the name for the collaborative come about? Uh, first, thank you, Khalil and Muhammad, for, for hosting us. Uh, very much appreciated. Uh, I mean, how, how the name, uh, I think we wanted a mnemonic that, that has the, the scientific validity of what we want to do, but at the same time, like many of the Lebanese uh, in Lebanon and outside Lebanon, we felt that there was enough, like we were getting one hit after the other in the country. And that was, it came as best, which what, what we wanted to do is like enough. So that's how the name came through. So we arranged the words in a way that has a scientific validity, but says the words enough. So that's about it. Excellent. And how did, the, how did the idea of the collaboration start, I guess? Well, I think uh, we had so many uh, uh, major medical centers involved in this, and uh, we really needed a uh, a good collaborative effort uh, so we can put all the experience together in a format that will be useful to anyone who listens to it or reads it. And uh, having uh, Haysam being involved, and uh, we've had uh, multiple previous collaborations with Haysam, uh, made it like a natural thing to happen because he has the resources and he can uh, join uh, all the efforts together without having any kind of like one side uh, having to uh, be leading or one side being uh, more responsive. So this was a good way of putting all this together under one umbrella. And uh, we had the right people, the right team, and uh, with the experience and leadership of Haytham, I think we were able to come up with a uh, uh, valuable contribution to the literature, summarizing the experience of this sad event. Congratulations on a really great paper. It's uh, really important to document uh, what happened on August 4th. And I want to congratulate you on the gigantic effort of collaborating uh, with all the centers involved in Beirut. It's really nice to see the medical community coming together to collaborate on uh, one big piece. And before we dive into the results of the study, uh, Dr. Habbala, maybe if you can tell us where you were uh, on August 4th, and if you can give us uh, and the listeners 
a feel of what happened actually on the ground that day? Well, uh, we had just finished a, a departmental meeting and I was called to the operating room to assist on a tumor case that was involving the iliac vessels. So I was in the operating room and we were trying to make some major decisions when this big uh, sound, a big explosion, uh, something happened. And we, the operating room in the, at AUB is in the basement. So it's on the lower level. And I was looking out of the up, uh, room two where I was looking facing room four. And I saw a whole closet come out of the wall and fall down. So I said, I expected that this was a major explosion within AUBMC. So we ran out to the entrance of the OR and realized that there were a lot of shattered glass and started getting some information. At the beginning, the news was that there was a uh, explosion at Beit al-Wasat. And this is how they initially came up. The first thing you start doing is try to figure out calling your family, seeing where your kids are, where your, your family, your immediate, immediate relatives are. And then next thing we hear that, no, it's a, an explosion at the port. And everything started to kind of unravel. So uh, we realized immediately the extent of the uh, disaster and the explosion. And we had to have everything mobilized to prepare for the mass casualty. So in our situation, we still had three operating rooms running in the operating room at, in Beirut. Uh, our uh, cancer patient, we asked them to try to wrap up things without having to do any big bypasses or anything. The other cases, we told them to immediately start finishing up and went up to the emergency room to start planning and uh, uh, coordinating with the emergency department on receiving the casualties. And typically with these situations, we have a mass casualty um, plan and uh, the faculty member have to assemble in a certain area so that we can deploy them into the necessary uh, situation into the necessary area where they are needed. But pretty soon we started being flooded with patients from you know the walk-ins and those that are being brought in by cars, those that are being brought in by ambulance. And uh, this is how it started basically. Thank you for sharing uh, your experience with you. This brings back memories. I was also at the UB when it happened. I was in the Sawaf building and the ceiling actually fell on me uh, in the clinic room, but it was full plafond. So thankfully I wasn't injured, but it's very valuable to hear what has happening on uh, the leadership uh, uh, level. Khalil, do you want to share? Yeah, at the time I was still I was still in Lebanon actually when it happened, and I was not at the hospital, so I did not know the extent of the explosion initially until we started getting messages from the hospital to mass mobilize and come over. And and Rizal Hospital was located in Ashrafiye, so basically it was one of the areas that was hit harder uh, for several reasons from the explosion. So when I got there, I was surprised to see like a lot of the hospital partially uh, uh, partially destroyed, uh, a lot of people. Inside, outside the ER, there were a lot of lacerations initially, and then uh, we started seeing more patients coming in with head injuries, requiring intubations and intensive care, uh, intensive unit, uh, intensive care unit care. We actually even ran out of. By the end of the night, we had run run out of ventilators uh, uh, at the time, uh, and it was it was pretty. It was a big. It was one of the biggest mass casualty events I was involved in. And, uh, and you could see, for example, patients would get in, they get CAT scans of the brain or chest, 
and they were numbered trauma one, trauma two, trauma three. And it, initially it was difficult for us to even locate uh, which patient had which scan and we had to go down, send residents down to the radiology department to locate that. So it was a, it was a big event at the time. You know, this is an important uh, comment that you just made here, which is uh, how do you go about registering these patients when they come in in a mass casualty situation? And we faced an, an enormous problem at AUV, uh, which is the fact that we had a, uh, an electronic medical record system. And our electronic medical record was already prepared for mass casualty. So we have prepared already like a list of more than 200 patients in the emergency medical record so that you can uh, use and uh, in the time of mass casualty, but they have to have certain the bracelet and everything. They were located in one part and, and we, it was this thing, this event happened uh, after we had had a major uh, layoff in the hospital. So we were short of staff and the uh, clerks at the entrance of the emergency room could not keep up in registering patients. And we ran with this problem of registering patients. And ultimately we had to go to paper type of registration. And it took a while until we were able to really get things synchronized. So I think one, one important lesson for all of us is uh, at the beginning, at least the registration part, you should have a good mechanism in your emergency preparedness plan to how to register these trauma patients when they arrive and have it uh, uh, almost a flawless system whereby you either, you have to stop counting on electronic medical record and most likely use paper records and track each patient together. And even if you, I mean, you could have an emergency uh, situation that affects your own hospital and you lose your electronic medical record. So how do you do? So you have to improvise and even prepare to write on the patient or write on the bed and, and identify each patient by a way so that you can correlate the X-ray finding with that specific patient and make sure that this is the patient whom you send this blood, this is the patient who's getting the, the blood and uh, which X-rays goes to whom. Yeah, and, and here, I think we deal with EMRs, especially here in the US all the time. I know at AUB, uh, EPIC is there. Uh, so it looks like in this case, EMRs were not uh, fast enough to be able to register all these patients. Do you think they can be made better to accommodate such situations or are they just not made for such situations? Yeah, that, that's a really good question. Actually, one of the themes that came out of, of the study in all four hospitals that contributed is there's no question that electronic medical records, but even you know, non-electronic medical record just failed to satisfy the demand for the mass casualty that happened. So there is a way you could do that. I don't think it means we should not have EMRs in disasters, but like I've been talking with uh, the chief information officer at our hospital saying there is potentially you can create a virtual mode in EPIC in specific, but also in other medical records where you call it disaster mode, which allows to bypass a lot of the safety steps we do in our current registration, but at the same time, just keeps the minimum safety needed to take care of the, you know, multiple casualties. So there's ways around it. Um, and I, I do think that's an important lesson that not only Lebanon can learn from, a lot of other places can uh, learn from 
we in Boston in 2013, there was the Boston Marathon bombing and we faced the same problem. The, the, back then, the electronic medical record uh, was a local version, not Epic. We've switched to Epic since then. And we did note it as a problem as well back then, even though the number of casualties was smaller than Beirut. But I think uh, it, that's the lesson that a lot of institutions should learn. Have a mode in your electronic medical record that's called the disaster mode that allows to bypass a lot of the routines uh, when this happens. I would like to make a comment here that it wasn't that Epic failed us or the EMR system was not adequate. In our situation, we didn't have enough manpower to enter the data and to register the patient. So, and we received 360 casualties within four hours. So in an emergency room prepared for like 42 beds. So it's not like it's not like the it's not like the system failed us. We did not have enough manpower to capture the patients and put them and record them. And many patients arrived without no IDs, without any identification forms, uh, were unconscious. No one could identify who they are. So uh, I think there is a process, as Haysam said, that you can have a disaster mode and you can have pre-prepared bracelets with numbers and everything, and you can number each one and give them a bracelet, and then now you have their IDs and you have things, and then you can later uh, try to get them uh, in synchronous with their actual names and actual chart numbers. So I think uh, like any tool, you need to have the human power to enter the data in it, and these have to be coordinated. But you also have to be prepared that that same tool can be broken. You can have a, an explosion in your hospital, so how do you deal with that? So you really need to be prepared and consider, as you were saying, using paper sheets, paper records, et cetera. I think just the sheer volume was very overwhelming. Just to reiterate, there were, we're talking about 8,000 uh, casualties and then the four hospitals included in this paper, there were around uh, 1,800 patients. So just the sheer volume would overwhelm any system, be it paper-based or uh, electronic-based. Uh, the math just doesn't add up, like Dr. Habala was saying, in terms of the manpower to do the actual work. It's, it just overwhelms any system you have. Uh, so maybe this is a good time to segue uh, into um, the casualties uh, and uh, how it's related to the trajectory of the explosion. So uh, I know there was different hospitals included in the study. So uh, I don't know if uh, Dr. Kafarani wants to talk a little bit about that. Uh, yeah, uh, sure. I mean, we what what we had, you know, what we were able to do in each of the hospitals is to, you know, get a lot of data on the patients that were admitted. We had an estimate of the number that people that showed up, which, like you said, is about eighteen hundred uh, patients or more, near two thousand patients. But of those admitted, uh, you know, the the most kind of starking figures that that at least slapped me in the face was that 30 of them were either were dead on arrival or died in the emergency room. And then the range of ages of the victims, it's really all over the place from, there was the youngest victim in the four hospital was one week old and the oldest was in their nineties and everything in, in between. But I do think to the, to, as a testimony to the amazing work that the heroes on the ground did, like Dr. Habala and everybody else that day, the, once the patients made it into the hospitals and a lot of them needed surgeries for the next 24, 48 hours, continuous surgeries, they, the teams did an amazing job. 
the mortality was as low as 3.5%, uh, meaning a lot of the people were able to be saved. And that's, that's kind of my take from that day. It did not come easy. It came with a lot of complications, a lot of disabilities that patients left with, as you can see in the paper, and we can go into details. But I, I do think uh, that, that only 3.5% of people who arrived, who were admitted died is really an amazing number. So thank you to all the heroes on the ground who made that happen. And, and, and it seems that that initially what, what was interesting in the paper was that initially a lot of the injuries that came in were people walking on the streets, passing into the ER, like lacerations, which quickly overwhelmed the emergency departments. And then the more severe injuries started uh, showing up afterwards. Uh, so uh, do you think uh, some things could have been done differently from that standpoint, treating the lacerations elsewhere other than the ER, I guess? Well, I think you're bringing up a very good point. With all these mass casualties, they come in waves. You have the first wave, the walk-ins, and then you have the second wave, which comes in a little bit later with the more and sicker patients that have been extracted from the rubbles or uh, gotten in. And uh, certainly, um, the one of the issues that one worries about is over-triaging the first wave and then filling up your emergency slots with the first wave was not as sick as the second wave that comes in uh, that comes in uh, later. Now, uh, if you are in a zone like Iraq or where you have mass casualties coming every other, uh, you know, frequently, you may have some field hospitals where you can start taking care of some of the, what is clearly a glass injury to the forehead or to the arm or something and take care of it outside the main, the main, center. But in our situations in all, all the world where, you know, these mass casualties happen once every every decade or whatever or more, then you're faced with these patients. You have to have the knowledge that the first wave is not going to be as sick. And that's why you have to be very prompt at dealing with the lacerations and discharging the patients as soon as you can from the ED. The other thing that's very important in your, in your, in your, uh, emergency preparedness plan is to have multiple zones whereby you can do a good triage from the beginning. And those that have small lacerations, you send them into those yellow zones or green zones, let's call them, where the uh, severity of the injury is not that high. And that's where you can use staples for these lacerations, just wash them, staple them, and get them out of there. If they are walking in, they may be able to walk out and try to keep your emergency room as ready as possible for the second wave and the sickest patients. So, so my, my short answer is you need to have a good triage system and you need to have good planning of your space in your ED and in the hospital to accommodate these patients and make sure they, they don't plug in or fill up your uh, major trauma slots for the resuscitation of the sicker and sickest patients. Have any comments on that? No, I know absolutely correct. I think th three main lessons in mass casualties, whether from Beirut or other incidences, is one of them is, is triage. Triage is extremely important, and we have a system of the, the based on colors. So having somebody like a trauma surgeon or an ED physician who can do that triage is important. The second point is everybody in a mass casualty needs to step out of their comfort zone. 
So people will be elevated in what they can and cannot do, and there where they will step up. That's the, and the third one is the enemy of good is perfect. You know, while in a normal situation, somebody who's coming with a laceration, you might want to spend two hours cleaning and uh, and doing uh, you know plastic sutures. This is not the time. This is the time where the enemy of of good is perfect. You just gotta get them going and expect there are more and more and more casualties and more severe casualties that will come. And that's also another point from the, the paper that came and there's a graph in the paper. I encourage everybody to take a minute to look at it. But basically the, the, the first two hours, they were all mild injuries. We measured it some, using something called the injury severity score, well-recognized score in the trauma field. And they were all very mild. It's only after the second hour that you started getting the really, really severely sick people. And those people, if you didn't have resources to take care of them, they die in the first hour. So those needed the most attention. Um, and that's important. This is why triage is really important and getting these patients, as uh, uh, Jamal said, immediately out of the ED as soon as you stabilize their injuries uh, is important. Definitely. Uh, when you're talking about all of this, I'm just getting flashbacks about being in the ED and just having a staple and just going to every patient without just whoever needed a uh, staple, just staple them, no questions and move on to the next. Uh, we even ran out of like betadine, uh, I remember uh, for a while and gauze and everything. So just doing like basic stapling, one patient after the other, just uh, looking around. And also somewhere in the paper, you mentioned something about patients uh, with like psychological trauma. And a lot of patients who were coming to the ED were just like in full shock. So uh, definitely something worth uh, exploring. But uh, I think Actually, uh, if, if, if I may add, because that's another important point, again, uh, as, a, as a trauma surgeon, that's what I do every day. And I always say the patient that you're hearing the most about is the one that needs your attention the least. It's really the one that you can't hear their voice is the one that really needs your attention the most. And, and you know, if, if they're able to scream and tell you somebody takes care of me, that patient is doing OK. The patient that you're not hearing their voice is the one you need to go to. I think that's the lesson they try to uh, teach and drills uh, when you're triaging patients. This is one of the main messages. Uh, I don't know if you want to talk, spend some time talking about the surgeries that were done. Um, in the paper, you, you mentioned something around more than 400 operations done in the four uh, hospitals and most patients need, needing two or more uh, surgeries. So uh, Dr. Habala, do you want to give us uh, your insight? Sure. I think uh, when you are triaging uh, in the ED, you first have to decide, uh, identify the, pa the patients who are going to crash on you and pass away. And, and then... Uh, you have to identify those who need to go to the operating room right away. So uh, in, in that situation, those who go to the operating room are either for a life-threatening condition or limb-threatening condition. Uh, and that's why the first six to eight hours, all the patients that went to the operating room were for massive brain injury, uh, eyes coming out of the globe, uh, partial amputations of hands or uh, uh, extremities, uh, trauma to the multi-trauma to the chest, abdomen, liver. So these were the kind of patients we operated on in the first eight hours when 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 the patients start to arrive, and that's the typical thing because the other ones you're stabilizing them and they typically will have 
skeletal skeletal fractures, so skeletal injuries. So they will have uh, bone fractures, multiple lacerations, tendon injuries. But the life-threatening, limb-threatening are the ones that gets done immediately. So these were completed and finalized by like 2 a.m. in the morning, 3 a.m. in the morning. The following day, then that's when you start dealing with the fractures and you have fractures of all type of fractures from all the way down from the uh, clavicle all the way down to the toes, fractures of the femur, fractures of the humerus, uh, all kinds of fractures, plus the plastic surgical, uh, plastic and reconstructive injuries to the soft tissues. Uh, so that's how it goes the second and third day, some, some other ophthalmological oriented injuries, and this is how they taper down. So we start from the uh, head, chest, abdomen, extremities, life limb threatening to uh, the less severe that were triaged in severity the following two to three days. Does that, uh, does that clarify it? Uh? Definitely, definitely. And uh, just in terms of the numbers, so we were talking uh, close to 500 uh, operations were done uh, on the patients. Um, how does that compare to the usual load uh, at those centers in terms of like the sheer number and volume of operations done that day and example, the few I days after? Example at AUB, for example, typically our OR day usually at AUB is a, uh, we have about uh, 45 to 50 cases per day in our operating room. Now, when we got these injuries, we did uh, a total of 68 operations you know, within the following three days. Uh, but it's, so the, that first night of the injury, we did about 17, 18 cases in the operating room. And then we put all the OR schedule on hold. We canceled all the elective schedules so that we can accommodate all the other traumas on the following two to three days. So then each day after we we're doing about 26 cases or 20, 20 some cases, which is about half the volume that we usually do but that was, you know, some of these cases are longer cases. And so that's, that's the average type of uh, caseload compared to our regular activities. Yeah, I, I remember also there were, I mean, there were a lot of head injuries and the base of skull fractures that were seen, but I guess a lot of them probably did not require to be operated on or surgeries at times at that point in time. And one question I have is the surgeries were done, looks like the outcomes were good, but there was a certain percentage of patients who passed away after arrival to the hospital or a number of days afterwards. So what were the predictors of survival versus non-survival and the patients who were operated on? I don't know, Haytham, if you want to start answering that question. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And then Jamal, please feel free to weigh in from the, the actual on the ground answer. But, you know, age and how severely they were injured really mattered a lot. So the more severely injured the patients were, the more polytrauma they had, the highest the chance of them not surviving was. And then independently having a brain injury by itself was an indicator, which sometimes the surgery, you know, does you know it, it tries to do a heroic work to try to decompress the pressure from the brain and allow the brain to heal itself but sometimes it works sometimes it, it doesn't so those were three main things and obviously if having torso injury with internal bleeding 
as predictors of death. Um, I don't know, Jamal, anything on the ground that you could think of that was important besides what you found in the paper? No, I fully agree. I think uh, just remember the mechanism of injury here, that massive explosion, uh, and then the uh, shattered glass, and then other heavy objects falling on someone. So this is a mechanism of injury. Those that were close to the blast and had the massive injury and affected their head or had head injury, you know, sometimes no matter what you do with half of the brain coming out of the head, there's very little you're going to do about it. Now, the other ones, the mechanism wasn't like a mass casualty with gunshots or, or a someone with a machine gun spraying people or something. It was more of a uh, this explosion and then the glass. So the glass, you deal with it in different ways. And the other injuries related to the chest abdomen from the multi from the multi trauma, obviously, are going to lead to the higher rates of uh, mortality in them. So uh, I think you summarize it very well. But remember the mechanism of the injury in the decision fact in, in the in the outcome analysis at the end. And I think the outcome analysis show, like Dr. Kafarani was saying, how well the patients did. The mortality was very low, but also the complications in terms of catheter-associated UTIs, in terms of AKIs, uh, patients needing unplanned intubation. So, and patients only stayed, I think, for an average of two days, which was also a very fast turnaround for such casualties and such uh, complex uh, surgery. So, uh, I guess that shows uh, goes to show how good the system is in Lebanon and how good of a job the teams did on the ground. I don't know if you want to talk a little bit about lessons for the future. I know uh, throughout the podcast, we talked a little bit about broader lessons, but if you want to spend a few minutes talking about specific lessons for the future. I think from my perspective, I think uh, preparedness could import the importance of preparedness. And you cannot be prepared without having numerous drills that are really valuable drills to prepare you for dealing with this with such a disaster without major panic. And the we had done so many drills at AUB, but when the event happened, we almost felt that it was above what any drill could prepare you for. So I think that uh, the importance of drills, and you don't have to have a drill for the entire event. You can have drills for specific things. So you can have a drill for registering mass casualty. You can have a drill for triage. You can have a drill for coordinating between the ED and the operating room. In our situation, for example, we were lucky that this event happened at six o'clock in the evening when the operating rooms were done, almost at the end of the day. Imagine if that happened at 11 o'clock or 10 o'clock in the morning and you have an open heart going, a liver resection, an aneurysm, etc., and the whole operating rooms are filled. So you need to have a contingency plan of where you put your patients if your operating rooms are filled up. Where you, what do you do? How do you prepare yourself if you had to, God forbid, evacuate your own hospital like it happened at St. George? So I think the first thing is to do numerous drills and do numerous drills for multiple things so that you are prepared and have a good emergency preparedness plan that has been well communicated to all the layers of the institution. So you need to have ahead of time plans that if you get that many number of patients, these are the locations where they go to. 
these areas will be staffed by this group of physicians. The major trauma slot area, the red zone, will be managed by the trauma surgeon and the surgeons. The yellow zone will be managed by the emergency physicians. I'm, I'm giving you uh, ideas, but not necessarily, but in general, this is how it should be. So that, you know, the, those, and, and that you need to have from the beginning, uh, the key players, those that make decisions from administration, nursing, physicians, surgeons, all present on ground to make these decisions on the spot and improvise if they have to get out of their comfort zone to deal with whatever needs to be done to accommodate the mass casualty. So uh, this is uh, at least uh, some of the key lessons that I learned from, uh, from, this, from this experience. And I'm sure there are plenty others that we have described in the paper, but I would let Haysam comment because he also has a wide experience uh, with that. So Haysam, please. Yeah, I mean, I mean, not, not much to add to you, Jamal. The only thing I say, like the next disaster, whether in Lebanon or not, will come. And, and usually our failures, the failure to imagine what it would be. And nobody in their own mind would have imagined what happened. But however, the, the failure to prepare is what we call preparing to fail. So drills like what Jamal mentioned are important and they're important to be realistic. Like when you're having a drill, people need to be taking it seriously and behaving as if it's real. It takes a little bit of believing yourself that this is important rather than taking it as a joke when it happens and doing it at a very, at the separate levels of a trauma. So the drills don't need to be only in the hospital. The drills need to happen at the pre-hospital care. What is the role of the Red Cross, the Esaf al-Madani? What is the role of the bystanders, the civilians? We could have initiatives in Lebanon that tell people what to do in these situations, what to do when you have a limb that's bleeding. Can they put a tourniquet? Can they not put a tourniquet? Can they do CPR? Can they not do CPR? How fast do they need to get the patient into the hospital? There are other things we could do. I mean, the prevention component, I'm not even gonna go into how could you prevent what happened in Beirut. It's a discussion for another day, but can you prevent the secondary prevention? You know, what do we do with glass, the glass, laminated glass, would that be a safer thing to do in a zone like Lebanon? Could that have prevented thousands of people who are mildly injured and maybe some of those who died? We could talk about in hospitals, where do you place your operating room? Where do you place your lab, your uh, imaging? I mean, there are, these three functions are essential in mass casualties. So if you got a, a hospital like St. George that their operating room goes down, that hospital became non-functional. It has no use. It has to transfer its own patients out. So a lot of le lessons, you know, we try to kind of summarize them in a short paper, but they're not only lessons for, for us in Lebanon, they're lessons for a lot of people. A lot of countries are reading this study in order to prepare for their next disaster. And I hope at least in Lebanon, to be honest with you, I'm going to disagree with you, Muhammad. I, I don't think our system in Lebanon is what saved these people. I think it's the individual heroes on the ground who stepped out and helped. I don't think the system was as good. And I, I do think we have a lot of lessons we should tap ourselves on the back for how heroic everybody was. But as a system, and I know a lot of things are happening in the country, as a system, we need to learn how to create systems that, that can deal with the next disaster. That's my opinion. 
Well, I, I, I tend to agree with what you're saying, Hassan, especially with respect to coordinating the whole uh, situation. I mean, who's responsible when something like that happens? In Lebanon, we don't have a good clue who's responsible. Is it Defa al-Madani? Is it uh, Red Cross? Who, who is responsible? We don't have a national authority that is really taking care of the whole thing and distributing and communicating between hospitals. So it was one of the major issues that we faced was the uncertainty. Well, who's coming? What's coming next? How many are we expecting? So to have, you need to have a central command area that deals with all the casualty and helps disseminating the patients, transferring them into, into various, uh, into various uh, hospitals, etc. A lot of things uh, helped in, in our situation. Some patients by themselves realized that they had smaller injuries, did not even bother to come to the main hospitals and took a cab and went to hospitals 20 kilometers away because they knew that they would be able to get care. They knew that if they came to the major centers with all this, with the, with all this injury, then no one would maybe be able to take care of them. So again, it's uh, a lot of things should be done, can be done. And it, vary, it varies from one country to another. But I want to go back to something that you said, Haysam, is how to prepare the public. And, uh, you know, the ACS, the American College of Surgeons, has that Stop the Bleed program. And that's, that's a, program, a program that uh, every ACS chapter in every city should kind of disseminate and make sure that the public uh, is aware of, as you said, how to put a tourniquet, when to put a tourniquet, what kind of uh, mechanisms can you stop to prevent exsanguination from a glass injury? And people can exsanguinate from a glass injury that goes to the femoral vein, femoral artery area, because they don't even know, they would panic and they wouldn't even know how to compress or what to compress and stuff like that. Another thing that was really uh, uh, of significance in our situation is we were doing all this in the middle of a COVID situation. Uh, and in the middle of a COVID surge. So people were coming, no masks and uh, no protection devices and, uh, and the, the, health, the healthcare uh, providers have to be, to realize that, you know, there are communicable diseases and they need to protect themselves as much as they can within the, within the setting so that to preserve themselves for the entire care. And you need to replenish your supplies as much as, as soon as possible. In our situation, three days later, we had another mini mass casualty. I mean, we had riots and then we start having people being shot and coming to the ER. And, you know, you need to have all your supplies replenished as, as, as fast as possible. So it's a, it's a um, tragedy that we do not wish anyone goes through. Uh, but as uh, we said earlier, preparedness is the key. Preparedness is the key. Yeah, and you told to your point, Abdullah, I think uh, I remember uh, walking in the ER or between rooms with the same isolation gown from one patient to the next because we did not have enough isolation gowns, or at least we were we were not prepared for, for such a disaster. And the second thing I think that was interesting was that a lot of the patients came in, brought were brought in by private cars and not by ambulances. And that was to your point that we don't have a good system of transferring people over to the hospital and even the ambulances in Lebanon for those people who don't know are not well stocked with supplies that you can potentially take care of patients in the ambulance prior to them getting into the hospital. But uh, but I'm hoping, I mean, hopefully 
such an event will not happen again in Lebanon and also all around the world, I guess, but we, but it will, it will happen at some point. And I think people need to be prepared and hopefully learn some lessons from what happened in Beirut. So this event will not happen again. And I want to thank everyone for being today on the podcast and also for people who did not make it today, but, but, just to mention that this uh, paper involved four major hospitals in Beirut. It involved the uh, AUB uh, Medical Center. It involved the LAU Medical Center as a hospital. It involved the uh, uh, Hotel Dieu Hospital in Ashrafiyye. And it uh, also involved Kimoso Medical Center in uh, Beirut. So thanks to everyone. Uh, and uh, hopefully this will not happen again. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you both of you.